Believe it or not. Strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. Unbelievable? Believe it. Ripley's Believe It or Not. Incomparable, inimitable, illimitable, inestimable, introducer of immeasurable, incalculable, incredible impossibility. Welcome to Ripley's Believe It or Not cast, the podcast that brings you deep into the strange, the bizarre, and the unusual. I'm Ryan Clark. And I'm Brent Donaldson. So, Ryan, I want to take you on another trip. Back to the land of Siam in southeastern Asia. The year 1824 picture that you are a merchant there to help manage the exchange of goods between Singapore and Bangkok. But one night, just before dark, you're sailing along the Chow Phraya River when you spot something in the water. You tell your shipmate that it looks like some kind of human animal, a creature with two heads but only two arms and two legs. You stop the boat to investigate and discover the creature to be human Two brothers, in fact, joined by flesh at the chest, standing in the river, bathing shirtless in the water. Their names, Chang and Aang. And that moment, the legend of the world's most famous Siamese twins was born. The man who spotted Chang and Aang that day was Scottish merchant Robert Hunter. What he didn't know was that the conjoined twin brothers were already legendary in their own village. But Hunter knew the financial windfall that could be made if he brought them out of Siam and presented them to the world. On this episode of the Notcast, we bring you the twins' amazing story. We chronicle their rise from duck salesmen to successful sideshow performers to American slave owners who each marry and have a total of 21 children between them. So for those of you who think you know everything you care to know about Chang and Aang, I highly recommend you hold tight. But first, some quick background info. Conjoined twins occur in one out of every 200,000 births when the fertilized egg begins to separate but doesn't completely split. These twins are always identical, and the large majority, about 70%, are female. And in addition to our odd authority on Chang and Nang, who we'll introduce in a moment, we feature in this episode an interview with formerly conjoined twins Kendra and Malaya Heron who were conjoined until the age of four and are now enjoying an independent lifestyle that Chang and Aang never could. But first, starting off today's story is Dr. Yunte Huang, professor of English at the University of California, Santa Barbara. His biography of the twins called Inseparable was recently released in paperback. Here, Dr. Wong paints the picture of that first meeting between the merchant sailor and the conjoined twins, which would change the course of all of their lives forever. Uh, Robert Hunter was a very shrewd businessman, and um, he came um, to Siam via Singapore. And on this particular day, uh, I think it was 1824, um, he was cruising down, cruising down uh, this river, and it was getting dark. And he saw in the twilight two, you know, some mysterious creature swimming in the river, two heads, four limbs. And it's almost something like out of Greek mythology. Uh, he came closer, then he realized that he actually had these two boys, uh, you know, conjoined at the basis of the chest. As a shrewd businessman, he immediately realized a, a, a golden opportunity. So he talked to the boys and he came back the next day, uh, talked to their mother. 
tried to convince her to uh, let him take the boys out of the country and show them to the world and make a lot of money. And that's how, you know, um, uh, this, their whole career as showmen got started. So let's flash back a bit and get a little more information about the twins' upbringing. They were born on the riverboats in the small fishing village of Meklong in 1811 in Siam, which is modern-day Thailand. Their father was Chinese, and their mother was half Chinese, half Siamese. So technically, they were actually Chinese, but everyone called them Siamese twins. When they were born, they were conjoined by a four-inch band of flesh at the base of their chest, and they also shared a liver. People in the village were naturally curious about them, but they were fiercely protected by their mother. Because of their rather small connection, Dr. Huang says they enjoyed a certain bit of freedom, and in most cases, they were able to grow up just like normal children. So they had some, a certain degree of freedom, uh, although uh, freedom means something quite different to them, as you know, because they had to do everything together due to their condition. They had to, you know, they actually learned to walk together, they learned to swim together, and they had no choice but to eat together or go to bed together, or when cold nature came, they had to go together as well. And eventually, later in their life, as you know, uh, they will have to make love together uh, right. to their wives. Dr. Huang notes that the twins had different dispositions. Chang was more hot-tempered, though sharper in perception, while Aang was said to be calmer and wiser. But they grew up to be effective businessmen in their own right. After their father died when they were young, the twins were forced to help their mother raise money for the rest of the family, which included a number of siblings. So Chang and Aang sold ducks and duck eggs in the village. They used their disability to stand out from other salesmen, becoming showmen, in fact, and successful ones at that. But it never occurred to them to think beyond their village, at least not until the day Robert Hunter arrived. Unfortunately or fortunately, uh, Robert Hunter was not successful uh, in getting the boys out of the country the first try because it turns out the king uh, didn't agree. Robert Hunter had to give up for a few years. He dropped the, you know, the subject, the topic, uh, for a while until uh, an American ship captain by the name of uh, Abel Coffin. And he came to um, uh, Siam and uh, Robert Hunter befriended him and told him about this, you know, two wonder boys. And uh, Abel Coffin apparently, um, coming out of, uh, you know, Puritan blood, they had this kind of cotton mather sort of, you know, rhetorical skill, I think. <laughs> and um, he, um, uh, he talked to the, uh, to the king, uh, although he also came bearing gifts of uh, firearms, something the king oh. who was fighting uh, I think um, uh, next door, their neighbor. Uh, so he bad, the king badly need firearms. And the able coffin came in, in the right time with the, with the right gift. And he was also able to uh, convince the king the right way. Uh, the way he convinced the king was this. He said, if you will let us take the boys out of the country to show the world, you know, how, uh, how great this, um, how interesting these boys are, then the whole world will know what a wonderful kingdom you have that, that is able to produce such wonder boys. And so basically he was appealing to the king's vanity and, uh, and he succeeded. And the king eventually 
agreed to let them uh, take the boys out of the country. So the twins signed a five-year contract to leave the country to perform with Hunter and Coffin. On April Fool's Day, 1829, the twins left Siam, sailing on a four-month voyage to Boston, where they would make their debut as performers in America. It was on this voyage they would learn English, as well as some card tricks and other parts of their act, like how to play chess and checkers. They would learn how to tell jokes, which would please the audience. But as Dr. Huang notes, the environment wasn't exactly what the twins thought it would be. When the crowd asked them to do something, they had to do it. Act like a monkey? They had no choice. Take off your clothes and prove you're the real thing? They'd have to. And they hated it. The resentment for their managers began to grow. In the beginning, they were basically treated like slaves, right? They were enslaved. Uh, they were indentured servants in some ways. They signed a contract and uh, they were not necessarily like chattel slaves um, working in the field, but they didn't have any freedom. They have no choice but to satisfy whatever the audience was asking for because the owners want their gut, you know, get really inside the audience. And sometimes they have to take off their clothes and, you know, humiliated and everything. They really resented that. They especially resented the fact, um, one time, actually, the, their first trip uh, to England, uh, they, they were shocked to realize that the owners were traveling first class and they had to travel in steerage. And they really were not happy about that. And that's probably the first time they realized, you know, uh, they're not gonna, gonna like it. And that basically planted a seed of resentment and the rebellion eventually, uh, when they, you know, as you know, three years later, they broke free uh, from their owners. And it's with the initial period, I think you asked me, you know, uh, apparently, they enjoy seeing the world coming from a small fishing village in Siam. Uh, imagine their, you know, their feeling arriving in Boston, later on New York City and Philadelphia, eventually London. You know, they're very excited. They were they're curious boys themselves. As Dr. Huang points out, after five years, the twins were free from their contract and the degrading performances. They built up a huge international following. And then they had an idea. What if they can continue to do a show, one that they produce and control? They had befriended their manager, who worked with them under Hunter and Coffin, so they hired him. Then, maybe calling upon their negotiating skills from the duck-selling days, they purchased the carriage that hauled them around. They basically owned their own business at that point, except now they could do the act they wanted. After working the northeastern states, they decided to explore the American South, where they discovered a surprising level of acceptance. Still, during this tour, they began to think more about physical separation, starting with the question of whether it was even possible, because some of their personal habits and guilty pleasures were starting to affect the other twin. Yeah, uh, Dr. John Warren, right? Uh, the Harvard, you know, uh, Dean of Harvard Medical School was actually the first Western doctor who examined the twins. And uh, uh, Dr. Warren's verdict, you know, diagnosis was that separating them uh, may not be fatal, but will be dangerous. Uh, without x-ray, it's just impossible for him to, to really verify, right? Uh, yeah, they learn to negotiate with each other, but they, own, they have their own, I would say, uh, guilty pleasure. For instance, Chang is a uh, heavy drinker. Okay, and it actually got worse and worse, and that will, you know, uh, uh, something a factor that will pertain uh, to their death eventually. Um, uh, so when Chen drinks, 
Eng, who is not necessarily a teetotaler, uh, he, he drinks and you know, takes the liquor in moderation, had no choice uh, because they're joined at the liver. So imagine the effect when Chen continued to drink and Eng will, I guess, feel a little, a little tipsy. So later on, Mark Twain, right, uh, who was really fascinated by not just the sign, this time is twins. He eventually wrote a, a novel called, right, The Poodle Head Wilson, which actually was based on the Italian twins, uh, also conjoined. But anyway, um, Twain also wrote a, small, a shorter sketch of the life of the Siamese twins, in which uh, he really hones in on this, zeroes in on the, the drinking factor. Although he got the, the characters flipped, he thought Eng was the drinker, heavy drinker, and Chang was the, oh. the normal one. But, but his notion was interesting. He said, um, when one brother drinks, the other brother uh, is only physically drunk, but not morally drunk. That, that's right. Chen's uh, guilty pleasure. And Eng's guilty pleasure was actually late night poker. He likes to stay up all night to play poker. And Chen doesn't like that. And uh, he, so maybe because that's, that's why he takes to the model. I'm just trying to imagine being um, in a situation where you're physically connected to someone who has a drinking habit and you don't drink. So when one drink, when Chang drank, Aang would get drunk, right? I believe they would both feel the effects of that. Maybe, maybe yeah. Aang a little bit less so, but still? Possibly. Either way, when one indulged, it was not good for the both of them. Yeah. Right, like like in E.T., when E.T. gets wasted at home that day. The little kid gets wasted, too. Yeah. It's, it's like E.T. And yeah. then he frees all the frogs. Probably the first time ever that the Siamese twins have been compared to E.T. But, yeah, I think you're right. These were very prosperous times for the brothers. Uh, after seven years of working for themselves, the twins had accumulated more than $10,000, which would be about a quarter of a million dollars by today's standards. Uh, they decided to retire. Uh, so they become American citizens, and uh, they build plantation homes in remote Trap Hill, North Carolina. Uh, it was around this time they adopt uh, a much more American-sounding last name, Bunker, after a woman they admired in New York. And at just 28 years old, they were still young men. They were interested in marrying and having children. But as Dr. Huang points out, not only are they conjoined, but they're Asian, living in the American South. Um, still, they're wealthy, and they've become massive slave owners, uh, owning as many as 32 at one time, which increases their wealth immensely. Um, they're basically millionaires by today's standards. And uh, Brent, they're looking for love. So after seven years working for themselves, they earn a lot of money. And they really, they were really sick and tired of the world, you know, the the crowd the, uh, peeking at them. And so they, they eventually chose a, a very remote area in uh, Wilkesboro, North Carolina. And uh, they retired there just to be far away from the world as, as possible. And they bought land, built a house. Um, well, they were 28, energetic, healthy, wealthy, and they have desires. And so they want to you know, have women. Get married. And, uh, but imagine, uh, they were Asian and they were so-called freaks, okay? 
And how in the world can they find anybody to、uh, to go to bed with them? Let's say,、um, as you know, husband and wife.、Uh, fortunately, they met two local、um, two girls of、um, their daughters of a well-to-do farmer in town, and、um, Chang interestingly fell in love with Addie,、uh, the the younger sister. But Sarah was definitely was not interested in Eng, and she actually was sort of like freaking out. And、uh, Chang and, and Chang and Eddie knew that their relationship would not stand any chance if Sarah does not join the union. So they eventually uh, convinced uh, Sarah to、uh, to join them.、Um, so the double wedding, which took place in、uh, 1843. Was again made headline news all over the world. So Chang and Anne, knowing that they had to convince Sarah, they threw a quilting party. Do you guys still do that in Cincinnati down there? No.、Uh, oh, oh, what kind of <laughs> what kind of what kind of party? Quilting, quilting. Oh, a quilting party. <laughs>、uh, so not so they invited <laughs> women from from all over, you know, within five miles of ten、uh, miles of、uh, you know distance. They invited you know, local women. They threw a big party, a feast, show off the 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 house they just built. Chang and I also know they were frugal, but they also knew how to live in style. They bought actually all furniture, silverware, and everything,、uh, tapestry, everything from New York, and、uh, so it's it's a great house. And、uh, at the party,、uh, when the women were just you know knitting the quilt. Uh, they went around entertaining, cracking jokes. They they play flute,、uh, and、um, they're great hosts. So when the party was over, Sarah thought, "Okay, I'm sold. It's not such a <laughs>、uh, maybe. It's not a bad thing to be a mistress、wow. in this、uh, big house." So some 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 knitting, some nice not knitting, nice quilting, quilting. Diff- different thing. I think it's I think it's quilting. I think that's like if you're down in Paducah where the quilting museum is, they get really really. I think he would call you a、stuff. damn Yankee at this point. I think he would. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>、really、so、do. some some card tricks, some knitting. <laughs> that's right.、Uh, some flute playing. Some flute playing. I'm sold, man. <laughs> All right. All right. I'll join this foursome. Why not? There were other factors that led to Sarah agreeing to join this double union. Doctor Huang says one of those reasons is that she was used to people looking at her family like a curiosity. Plus, as they're on the verge of getting married, the idea of the twins' separation comes up again. The brothers are in favor of exploring the idea, but it turns out that it's their future wives who aren't necessarily supportive.、Uh, I think that. Uh, there, are, there are a few more factors I think that determine Sarah's eventual、uh, acceptance.、Um, one I think is their mother, Nancy. Nancy was actually、um, uh, very obese. Actually, I think something genetic. Because later on, Sarah and Addie, when they、um, you know uh, uh, reach middle age, they were also、uh, very obese. Nancy weighed about five hundred pounds, according to you know the records,、um, the stories we、uh, we study. Uh, but anyway, so Nancy was an object of curiosity、uh, locally. Anyway, so growing、oh. up with a family member who was always object of curiosity, so Sarah was used to it. Okay,、huh. and there's another factor,、uh, not really a factor. I think it's indication. So before the wedding, 
Cheng and Anne really wanted, earlier asked me how they, you know, uh, what's their relationship with each other. Uh, before the wedding, Cheng and Anne consulted uh, Philadelphia doctors. They wanted to go through surgery to, to separate from each other so they can move on, live their own lives, you know, normal lives, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, I think it's completely reasonable and understandable. Um, Interesting, it was their future wives, the two sisters, who begged them not to go through with the surgery. Of course, one it's reasonable to speculate that the wives, the future wives, were worried about their safety. They don't want their men to die um, in order to live a normal life. Um, on the other hand, we can speculate, let's say, uh, if they had, they had gone through surgery, then the sisters would be just marrying two... Asian guys, and oh. that's not very interesting. They will not be marrying the world famous Siamese twins. What do you wow. say? So I think that's one factor uh, that contribute may contribute to Sarah's eventual acceptance. Right? There's another interesting thing too that we could take from this too is it the South plays a real character in this story, and not only our perceptions of the South and and you know me kind of growing up there a little bit, but also their acceptance by by Southerners and their decision to live in the South is very interesting to me. So you have a, a Southern family who's trying to find acceptance in a marriage of four people. It, it's almost a little much for me to wrap my head around, to be honest well, with you. Well, they adopted or co-opted um, um, slave ownership and is – the accumulation of a lot of money and being somewhat um, famous and living on a plantation and owning slaves, uh, that seemed to... that make it a little more easier to be accepted in the yeah, South? Yeah, that, that seemed to, to buy them purchase in the social life of the South at the time. I don't think there's any... I don't think it's making a great leap to say that. Uh, but it just adds more to this just already fascinating story. Uh, you know, the deeper we go, it just seems the more interesting it gets. And it gets better right here. Right. Uh, so the four of them were married in 1843, and the unions made headlines all over the world. Uh, some wondered just how the marriages would work. For a while, the group lived together, sharing a bed made for four. But it became too much, Dr. Huang said, and the brothers and their wives eventually worked out a better idea. They had two homes, one for each wife, and they would trade off days during the week. One day would be for Chang and his wife, and Eng would essentially allow his brother to make all the decisions while he remained in almost a catatonic state. Then Eng would have his days with his wife, and Chang would do the same. It seemed to work as their families grew. Chang would father 10 children while Eng fathered 11. Times were good on the bunker plantation, but their lives will once again change forever, this time due to the Civil War. And it will create a scenario where they will have to do something they never thought they would, go back on the road. So when the Civil War broke out, uh, they themselves couldn't go to the war. But they sent uh, their two sons, two eldest sons, as soon as they turned 18, uh, to the battlefield uh, to fight the Yankees. Uh, the two sons were wounded and captured by the Union troops, but they didn't. But they came back, came home alive after the war. But the twins were 
wiped out financially. They lost their slaves, but they also especially, they did a foolish investment in Confederate bonds. They were oh. thought, you know, they'd make, make a killing, but after the fall of the South, those bonds were worthless. And oh. they were eventually, they were absolutely financially wiped out. Um, and they have a large family to support, 24, uh, 21 kids. So they now have no choice but to went back on the road again because they only have one asset left, which is their conjoined body. That's how they got started out, you know. And, that's, and and how, that's how they ended. So now they're middle-aged with more than 20 children back home in North Carolina. The Bunker Twins set out back on the road revisiting their former lives as curiosities. They briefly worked for P.T. Barnum. They traveled overseas, and over time, they were able to make back much of the money they'd lost, or at least enough to support their families. But they did not like what they were doing, Dr. Huang says, and that eventually led to their tragic end. You know, they briefly worked with uh, Barnum, but, but they, they make more trips on, the, on their own. And uh, they, uh, on their way back uh, from England, uh, their last trip, actually, across the Atlantic, uh, Chang, uh, they are playing a they are playing a chess game with somebody. In the middle of the game, um, uh, Chang had a stroke, uh, so they became bedridden. Um, and they came home, recovered a little, but Chang, the heavy drinker, um, again uh, his health deteriorated pretty quickly, and so Chang died first on a very cold morning uh, in January on 1874. They were 62. Chang died in sleep. And woke up, realizing his brother was gone. He was really, I guess, terrified and uh, lonely, apparently, because it's the first time he was so-called by himself, right? right. And uh, he died uh, a few hours later. So he has a he had a few hours to linger to live so-called his own life, and but that's not something he will, you know, he will, was looking forward to. Today, the descendants of the Bunker Clan are flourishing. Their family has a reunion every year on the last week of July, and about 1,500 people showed up in 2017, Dr. Huang said, many of them sporting an interesting mix of southern twang and Asian features. They've mostly settled in North and South Carolina. Some have become great politicians and artists, while others are philanthropists and other pillars of their communities. In all of them, the memory and spirit of the Bunker Twins lives on. It's amazing, right? So now, Ryan, let's shift and let's talk to a set of conjoined twins who are very much alive today, or at least these twins were conjoined until they were separated in 2006. So Kendra and Malaya Heron were able to get the kind of surgery that the Bunker twins never could. At the age of four, they were separated in a 26-hour operation, and now each lives a fairly, quote-unquote, normal life, or at least as normal as you can. Uh, when you've lived in the spotlight all your life and you call Oprah Winfrey a personal friend. But in terms of celebrity, maybe the Heron twins have more in common with the Bunkers than we originally thought. Yeah, I'm Kendra. And I'm Leah. Um, we are 17 and from Salt Lake City, Utah. So we were, um, we were born conjoined at the pelvis and... Yeah, we were separated when we were four. We've heard of like a lot of canoeing twins, even like us, um, not making it. And so, yeah, we're very lucky. Um, so when we were conjoined, we only had one kidney between the 
between the two of us. And I got that kidney, Kendra. <laughs> and um, Malia had to go on dialysis and get a kidney transplant. So each girl has one leg, which to no one's surprise has proven to be challenging. Still, the girls say they can do most anything any other teenager can. And even though they were only four at the time, Kendra says she can remember some of what it was like to be together and also what it was like to be separated. In fact, the Heron twins became the first set of conjoined twins to ever be separated when they shared the same kidney. Um, we were just told that it was cut apart day and we wouldn't be unstuck to one another um, anymore. And so I don't think we understood the risk of it. We just knew that we were getting separated. They didn't. Um, my parents didn't want to us to um be scared about it or anything so um i think we were excited about it we have home videos um where we're pretty excited to be separated yeah it feels it feels like it was a dream like it didn't really happen because we're so different so the girls as you might expect like different foods activities and school subjects and are for the most part independent of one another Kendra has her driver's license because, as she put it, she got the quote-unquote right leg, which helps. So she drives her sister around a bit, but says that she and her sister are very much their own person. Um, no, we're not around each other all the time. People, I, I, I think people think that we're always around each other, like most of the time we are, but it's not like we have the same friend group, but some of our friends are different, like... Like, just like people we know at school, they're different. So, and we don't have the same classes like we never really have, except for um, elementary school. So people assume that we have the same schedule and do everything together. But Much of the twins' lives have been chronicled in the media as they appeared on shows on TLC, as well as 2020, The Oprah Winfrey Show, and Inside Edition, among others. Even now, they have their own YouTube channel, where they host a show that every Wednesday updates how they're doing. They have fans with more than 23,000 subscribers, and they even interact with other conjoined and separated twins in a special group that meets every so often. So um, we've met three other sets that have been separated. And then um, um, I think like about twice a year, um, this family will come down from um, Idaho that they're still conjoined and we'll get to see them. and they're. Two, and we're seeing them next week. Yeah, they're they're really cute and they're really fun to be around. So like, um, I feel like with any of them that we've been around, it feels like like natural, like to hang out with them. Like, um, you don't feel awkward or anything just because, um, it feels like they so they've gone through the same experiences and it's, um really cool to like have like um see what's similar and what's different yeah <laughs> so one thing that kendra also pointed out was that she's interested in learning about other conjoined twins especially sets of twins from a long time ago who may not have had the opportunities to separate like she and her sister have yeah i i feel like i'm interested in learning about 
other Kaduan twins, like, especially, like, old time, um, like, when they weren't able to get separated. So, yeah, I think those are really interesting because, like, they had to live life together. Like, some of them got married and stuff. The twins are now preparing for the future, with Kendra taking an internship at a veterinary clinic and Malaya thinking of a career in video production. They wanted us to note that they are huge supporters of organ donation, as Malaya needed a kidney transplant after their separation, and they want to encourage everyone to follow their progress on their YouTube show, Heron Twins. We'd like to thank Dr. Yunte Huang and the Heron Twins for sharing their stories with us today. So Ryan, did you know there's a city in India known for being the home of a statistically ridiculously high number of twins? On our website, Ripley's.com, you can check out the tale of India's twin town, Kodini. Believe it or not. Five times the amount of twins are born there compared to the rest of the country. The crazy thing, no one knows quite sure why. You can find that and other amazing stories at ripleys.com. But now, Ryan, let's do or not. Do you remember what the or not section is? It's where we put modern day facts to the test because you can't always believe what you hear. Today, we've explored the lives of conjoined twins, from the legendary Siamese bunkers to the Heron teenagers in Utah. And while we've learned much about their lives together, and in the Heron's case, what it's like to be apart, there are still many general misconceptions about twins. Dr. Joan A. Friedman, a psychotherapist and expert on twins, told the website Urban Family that there is one especially large misconception that she's constantly questioned about. The myth that twins can read each other's thoughts and feel each other's pain. Friedman, a twin herself, has heard from many parents of twins who feel their children have a type of psychic connection, but she's not buying it. For one, she says she's never had a psychic connection with her own twin, and there is, in fact, no scientific proof to confirm such a power exists. So she's asked, how does one explain when twins finish each other's sentences or just happen to wear the same outfit or may even know what might be happening with them when they're miles away? Quote, they grow up in each other's face all the time, Friedman says. They become familiar with each other's personality, habits, and routines, while their emotional attachment produces a deep empathy. Friedman said the connection is similar to the one an old married couple might have. They can correctly predict one another's moves because they have a strong tie. But it's not a psychic one. Still, the stories of twins have intrigued us for years. Their bond, talents, and personalities have provided fascinating tales of amazing accomplishments. And so long as there are inspiring stories like these, we here at Ripley's will continue to chronicle them. Believe them or not. Believe it or not. Ripley's Believe It or Not cast is produced by myself, Ryan Clark, and Sabrina Seek. Our executive producer is Amanda Joyner. The Notcast is recorded at the historic Herzog Studio, home of the nonprofit Cincinnati USA Music Heritage Foundation. Visit Herzog in person or sign up online at herzogmusic.com. The Notcast intro theme was put together by Colton Cruz, and our ending theme song is by the band Wussy. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell your friends or leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments, questions, or ideas, email us at notcast at ripleys.com or tweet at ripleys. Be sure to catch the Notcast next week when we travel to Massachusetts to talk to a modern Salem witch. 
and learn the true gruesome tale of Giles Corey, a man sentenced to be crushed to death in the infamous witch trials. That's next week on Ripley's Believe It or Not cast. This friend of mine, he was five years old. He dressed up in his sister's clothes. And his daddy got so...